If you read any biography of any famous person, their death usually doesn't take a lot of space. Even if their death was really a pretty prominent part of their story, like Abraham Lincoln or JFK, it will still be only a tiny part of their biography. That's not what defines them. Within a few decades of Jesus' life, four accounts were written about him, and the story of his death takes up about one-third of these four accounts. In John, it takes almost half of the story of Jesus. So the final weeks of Jesus' life receive a disproportionate amount of attention. One scholar says the Gospels are accounts of Jesus' final days with an extended introduction. The final week of his life is the most important, and it is the climax of the story. This is hands down the most influential death in history. Now, normally when someone dies, their impact on the world begins to recede. Ten years ago, our world had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Well, now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. That was a joke. And, uh, but we've moved on from them. 2,000 years after Jesus' death, his influence has not declined. In fact, he has more followers in more places than ever before, and it continues to grow. Now, we're in chapter 26 of the story, and it is the account of Jesus' assassination. And when I read this chapter, I get swept away by the drama. You, you can see the inevitable unfolding. You just see it coming. Uh, I can almost hear the bass drum beating in the background. Boom, boom. Boom. Do it with me. Boom, 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 boom. It's going to happen. Okay, it's coming. No miracles breaking in, no supernatural rescue. This is a tragedy developing before our eyes. Boom, boom. It's, it's going to happen. But even though it is going to happen, and even though Jesus is mocked by the powers and abandoned by his friends, you get the sense that Jesus himself is overseeing this whole process. He has resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. He knows the fate that awaits him. The cross has been his goal all along, and you get the feeling he's the one really in control, allowing this process to happen. The people who thought they were in charge really were not. Now, there's several players in this assassination, several groups and individuals, and they all have an agenda. They all have reasons to get rid of this guy. And some of the players would include Rome and, of course, Pontius Pilate. Rome would say Jesus had to die because he was a threat to Rome, and any threat to Rome dies. There were in Jesus' day a lot of people, other people who claimed to be the Christ or be the Messiah, and they were going to lead a political movement. I want you to imagine, I know this will be hard, I want you to imagine for a moment that the Middle East is a volatile place where religious fervor and politics get mixed and in dangerous ways. And again, it's hard to imagine, I know. But in Jesus' days, it was very volatile. Rome always had trouble with this little section of the world. There was a lot of political unrest and tension and religious fervor. And Rome didn't take kindly to anyone who claimed to be a Messiah or a deliverer. Another player, of course, were the Jews in Jerusalem. They were waiting for a political leader, a Messiah who would lead them in revolt against Rome, who would clean up the corruption in the temple and lead Israel into freedom. So the Jews want Jesus to be the Messiah to overthrow Rome. And another player is Judas, one of the twelve. And you wonder, well, how can he betray Jesus? And there's various theories on why. Some say he was money hungry because he sold Jesus. Others say he was fearful and decided to strike a deal as Jesus' enemies closed in. Some portray him as disillusion. You know, why isn't Jesus raising up an army against Rome? So maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand. We don't know. The only explanation we have in Scripture is that Satan entered him. Other players like the religious leaders, to them Jesus was too popular and he was a phony Messiah because he didn't fit their understanding of the Messiah. We have Herod as well in his part. So there's a lot of intrigue, political, personal, and religious. And we need to know this too. 
There were a bunch of wannabe messiahs in the first century in Jesus' day. There were different thoughts about the, who or what the Messiah should be, but everybody agreed about this about the Messiah, that he would be a very powerful figure and he would lead Israel to freedom and overthrow Rome. And various individuals came forth as these would-be messiahs. And we read about a couple of them in the New Testament. In Acts 5, 36 through 39, Gamaliel is talking about Jesus and other would-be messiahs. And he says this, Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, talking about Jesus and his movement, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if they purpose or their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, Theudas is also mentioned by another historian, Josephus. And Josephus tells us Theudas was actually called a messiah. He got a bunch of people to gather on his side. He claimed that he could part the Jordan River. He claimed that he could make the walls of Jerusalem fall down, kind of like a modern-day Joshua. He led the revolt against Rome. He ended up being captured by the Romans, and they decapitated him in Jerusalem in front of the people. You don't mess with Rome. Another would-be Messiah mentioned here is Judas the Galilean, according to Josephus again. He found a group called the Zealots. One of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. Judas the Galilean said, God alone is the God of Israel. Caesar is an idol. Therefore, Israel should not pay taxes to Rome. And he got the people all worked up. Now, I don't know if you can imagine people getting worked up about paying taxes, but he did. And they were worked up. And the zealot's agenda was to incite a critical mass of Israelites to revolt against Rome. They believed God would honor that revolt and would tear down Rome and deliver his people. So this Judas the Galilean took up arms, got a bunch of followers to go with him, captured by Rome. His followers got captured by Rome. And Rome crucified 2,000 of them. And these crosses would be left up in the countryside just as a reminder This is what happens when you don't pay taxes. This is what happens when you uh, turn against Rome. And by the way, this happened when Jesus was a boy. Judas the Galilean was from Galilee, where Jesus grew up, in Nazareth of Galilee. And he would have seen these crosses when he was a boy. So being a Messiah is a really dangerous occupation. I doubt if these guys qualified for life insurance. Here's the dilemma. If you think you're the Messiah, how do you know for sure if you're really the guy? Theudas and Judas the Galilean thought they were, but they were wrong. Some of you remember the story of King Arthur and the sword and the stone and all that, and whoever could pull the sword out of the stone would be the king. And a lot of guys tried, but only one was able to do it. Well, how do you know you're the Messiah? You don't know until you try. And the Messiah would be the guy that could actually beat Rome. But if you fail, you get crucified. And if you get crucified, that means you're not the Messiah. And this happened time and time again. There were, that we know of, at least 18 separate wannabe messiahs in Jesus' day. And they all got killed. You don't mess with Rome. Jesus is crucified because he claims to be the Messiah. However, here's the big difference with him and these others. He was not a military leader. In fact, he deliberately rejects that role. And that's one reason there was so much confusion about who he was and his identity. The people want a Messiah that's going to take down Rome, and he won't do it. Why? Why doesn't he 
you know, raise up an army against Rome because Rome wasn't the problem. Rome was a problem. Rome was a brutal problem. It was an ungodly problem, but Rome wasn't the problem. There's a guy named Claude Harmon. He was a professional golfer, and he was the Masters champion in 1948. He went on to be a golf instructor after he retired, and he also had four sons that he taught to be golf instructors, and one of those sons was a guy by the name of Butch Harmon. Some of you may know that name. He's been a golf instructor for Phil Mickelson. He's worked with Tiger Woods, Greg Norman, Dustin Johnson, Natalie Golbus, and many other uh, well-known golf professionals. And here's what Claude taught his sons about instructing golf. He says, you have him take a club like this, and you watch him... This is three iron, which I can't hit worth a bean. But anyway, you, you watch him take the swing. And I hope I don't break anything. And you, uh, you observe all the things about the swing. And he says, now, I wasn't able to verify this story. I've heard this several times. I looked on the internet, couldn't verify it, but I think it's a great story, even if it's not true. <laughs> he says, when you watch someone make a golf swing, you will see ten problems. Your job is to find the one that causes the other nine. Interesting. You'll see ten thing, things wrong, But you'll need to find the one thing that causes all the other, the core problem. And, you know, we see a lot of things wrong in the world, a lot of things wrong with people, a lot of things wrong in our homes and relationships. There's bullying and meanness and poverty and greed and selfishness, abuse and fighting and gossip and anger and war. We see things wrong in the church sometimes. But there's one core problem that is the source of it all. And it's not low self-esteem. And it's not economic inequality, and it's not political. Now, those are all very real problems. But the core problem that is the cause of all the others is what the Bible calls sin. So Rome was a problem, but sin is the problem. Now, here's the dilemma that we have. We're going to go out and try to solve all these other problems in the world without dealing with the one problem that's causing them all. When I see what political leaders have to deal with, I feel sorry for them. They don't have the resources or the tools to deal with the core issue. The core issue behind every issue they encounter is an issue they are not equipped to handle or to deal with. Now, we've been going through this story. We're in chapter 26. Uh, We started way back in September, and I hope we've learned at least one thing. We've gotten this far in the Bible, that the common denominator all through this is sin is the core to all problems. And finally, here in chapter 26, finally we address the problem. Sin is what causes jealousy, greed, lying, immorality. It's also behind tornadoes, earthquakes, sickness, death, cancer, even nature thrown into chaos by sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. One minister was telling that in his church, each service begins with a greeting. The official clergyman says, the Lord be with you, and the congregation would respond and say, and also with you. And one Sunday, a visiting bishop went to a church where the sound system was known to be old and not very reliable, and as he approached the microphone, he tapped on it several times and said, there's something wrong with this. And the congregation automatically responded, and also with you. (laughs) Well, there's something wrong with you, and there's something wrong with me. We've all sinned, and that's our biggest problem. And then Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, okay? So when Jesus comes to solve this problem, he pays the wages of death. Now, here's a picture that you'll probably recognize. That's the Titanic, a marvel of human technology, unsinkable. Even God can't sink this ship. It sailed, uh, how many years ago would it be? 1912. 100? 
102 years ago, 102 years ago tomorrow, April 14th. So that's one picture. Here's the next picture. We know what happened. Once they hit the iceberg, the water started coming in. They knew they were sunk, and they couldn't solve the problem. The one problem they had, the hole in the side of the ship, became the source of a whole lot of other problems, like drowning and death and screams and fighting for spots on the lifeboat and fear and anger. The one problem is the source of all the others. How do you solve it? What do you do when the Titanic is going down? Well, someone gets the idea. Let's get a bucket and bail water. Okay, I doubt if they had plastic buckets, but they probably had a few buckets. Let's get everybody a bucket and we'll bail water and, and that'll take care of the problem. Well, actually, we know that's not going to happen. But as a society, we want to deal with a lot of the problems and a lot of the symptoms, but we really don't deal with the heart of the matter. Let's educate people. Let's lower taxes. Let's raise taxes. The right candidate will solve it. Pass more laws. Throw more people into jail. Hire more counselors. Help people with their finances. And we'll do a lot of good things to help people with the symptoms but there's, those are only the symptoms. How about rearrange the deck furniture? Get the deck furniture you know, over in this place and it'll look nicer and you know, we're going under, but we'll, we'll make people feel better and make them comfortable. See, some people don't even want to deal with the symptoms. Forget the bucket. Let's just make things look good and make everybody comfortable. And, and so they have this huge gaping hole in the side of the ship taking on water. Nothing can be done about it. We're going down, so let's just rearrange the furniture. Just enjoy life while it lasts. Another response, save as many as possible. And that's certainly the most noble and the wisest action. In fact, part of the reason for the church is we're in the world is to do just that. But that doesn't solve the problem. In chapter 1 in the story, way back in September, sin already comes in. Adam and Eve, you'll remember, they're in love, they're in harmony with God and nature, and then sin enters and they start blaming each other and they have shame, and a wall be gets put up between them and God, and nature's thrown into a tizzy, and their son kills his brother, and the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is about sin, and it's brutal, and it's ugly, and it's awful, and, and if you trudge through the Old Testament with us, you saw how ugly sin can be. And our culture seeks answers that do not address the problem. All these solutions you hear about are buckets to bail out a sinking Titanic. Now, I agree with these bucket moves. Yeah, we need better education. We need benevolent programs. We need to care for the poor and the outcasts and the abused and the sick. These are all Jesus things to do, but it doesn't solve the problem. I remember when I was in school, we had a political activist come and speak uh, to us. And I, I don't know if it was a 68 election or the 72 election but I remember the guy said, you know, and I overheard him saying, he didn't say this in his speech, but he said, if we just get the right person, this is it, this is the year. And if we get the right person in, it'll be, it'll be okay. If we don't get the right person in, there is no more hope. That was it, either 68 or 72. Apparently, either we didn't get the right person or maybe we did and it didn't make any difference anyway. It doesn't matter. He won't solve the problem. Go ahead and vote. Christians should vote. It matters, but I guarantee it won't solve the problem. The only perfect candidate is Jesus, and his office is of a different kingdom. So things like food pantries, clothing centers, benevolence, you know, being active in schools, drilling wells in Africa, there's lots of things to do. The adoption, those are good things, but whatever we do, we do it in the name of Jesus because he is the ultimate solution. He's not just a bucket to bail water. He fixes the hole in the ship. He said, I am the light. I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the life. And because he's the only one that can deal with the core problem. So on the cross, he took our sins, bore them upon himself, because the wages of sin is death. 
on the cross, God's own wrath falls on God. Now, the days leading up to the cross and the Passover, Jesus took bread, said, this is my body broken for you. You've heard those lines over and over. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he was, of course, pointing to the cross as the solution to the one gaping problem. And that's why on the cross he said, it is finished. I did it. This is the solution. Satan has been conquered. He's done. I remember once I was having some real struggles and the church was in a turmoil and just a lot of, uh, you know, and Satan was really active. Whenever church gets healthy, Satan gets active. I've just noticed that. And uh, I was driving down the road and I was talking to God and then I just started talking, thinking about Satan, I started talking to him. Now, I wouldn't advise talking to Satan too much, um, but I was, and I don't know if he can even hear, but it doesn't matter. I yelled at him and said, you idiot, you bum, you, and I called him all kinds of names. I didn't swear, but I called him names and I yelled at him and said, you've lost, you dirty rat, you know, and stop it, you know, just stop it. You've defeated. Why do you even try? The hole in the ship has been fixed and you can't do anything about it, so get out of here. And I went on ranting and raving against Satan for about five minutes. You know, it's finished. Evil is done. The hole has been fixed. Now, Satan's still doing what he can. And he's doing as much damage as he can, but he's done. The victory's been won. And all this garbage you see today, it will get cleaned up. Because the core problem has been dealt with. When we see the cross, the assassination, we, we see how ugly and awful our sin is. Jesus makes a way back home for us solving the one problem we cannot solve. Isaiah 53 says, surely he took our pain, bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He did it for us. He closed the hole in the Titanic. Now, the ship still has a lot of water and still has a lot of damage, because the, but because the hole has been closed, we can start fixing the damage. See, there's a hole in my life. There's a hole in my soul. My, my ship's going down. But in Jesus' death, that hole has been patched, and now we have to bail the water that's, that's in my life. You know, we've got to fix some of those things that got broken because of that sin. We've got to get the furniture back in place. Right now, I'm a broken Titanic that has been patched. And I'm in the process of being fixed. You know, I've still got some damage from that old sin, still got some things I need to get out of my life. I need to bail some of those things out. So the first step we call justification. I am justified by the blood of Jesus. The hole has been patched. My sin's been paid for. I've been made right with God. It's just as if I'd never sinned. But there's still that old residue of that old nature, that old sin. So the second step is sanctification. I still have those old habits in my life and they need to be sanctified, made clean, you know, get the stuff off the ship, fix the damage. So the first step patches the hole. That's the justification. That's the core problem. The second step repairs the ship. That's the sanctification. Jesus' death is the way to life. Now, this shouldn't be surprising when we say Jesus is the way to life, his death is the way to life, because death is what gives life all around us. Everything at one time or another was living. Tomatoes, onions, animal, trees, plants, all the food that you eat was living at one point but had to die in order to be eaten. If you go to a restaurant and you get food that's still alive, leave immediately. Not good place. Here's the principle. We have to eat to live, right? And everything you eat that gives you life had to die first in order for you to eat and live. So death is the engine of life 
all around us every day. Worm is eaten by the bird, bird eaten by the cat, eaten by the wolf, just goes all on all around us. That's why Twinkies are not good for you. They've never been alive. <laughs> Death is what gives life to the physical universe. So when God wants to give us life, he sends his son and he has to do what to give us life? Die. God giving us life through Jesus' death isn't a new idea. It's been around us every day. And then Jesus said, for you to be fully alive, you have to die. You have to take up your cross, deny yourself. To really live, we have to die. And then he offers his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we become righteous. It's called an imputed righteousness. Impute means to attribute or to ascribe. God says, I give you my righteousness by taking your sin from you, by dying for you, and by paying those wages. And after this sin has been paid for, we continue to grow in righteousness. Romans 6 says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of righteousness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You're alive. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. One of the punishments that the Romans sometimes used was to join a criminal face to face with a dead body. They would tie the living criminal to a dead person, arm to arm, hand to hand, face to face, body to body, leg to leg. And wherever the live person went, the dead person went with him. One historian wrote this about that, said, till choked with stench in loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. Horrible death. The living person takes on the dead body. Jesus takes on our dead body so that we can live. I like how one dad explained this to his kids. He sat them down and said, from now on, if one of them did a wrong, the other child, the innocent child, could volunteer to take the spanking. And that's what Jesus did for us. We were guilty, he was innocent, but he chose to take our spanking. That's substitutionary atonement for toddlers. Folks, this is the good news. That sin that is in your life, that is your main problem. And Jesus has taken it from you. If you ask him to, have your sins washed away in baptism, you still have some of that residue, some of that old stuff, and God's working on you to, to remove that residue. He's cleaning you up. And what I want us to do this morning, I, I would like you to think of one sin in your life. Most of us can think of more than one. I get that. But I want you to think of one that has really caused problems. Maybe it's anger or lust or dishonesty or discouragement. Maybe it's negativism. Maybe it's your tongue. Maybe it's a thought. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe you haven't forgiven someone or there's some grudge or some hatred for someone. I want you to write one sin on your piece of paper that you have in your seat. And I've already written mine down here. So I want you to write down one sin. And then while we sing the next song, I'm going to have you come up and attach it to this cross. We've got clothespins over here. Just attach it to the cross. If you don't want anybody to see your sin, fold it up and put it on there. Okay? And I want you to attach it to the red string, representing his blood, realizing that in Christ you have been forgiven of that. The hole's been patched. Put it on the cross because that's where that sin is at. Now the residue in your life is just that, it's residue. Christ is sanctifying and cleansing you of that. And sometimes it's a lifelong process and you won't be totally sanctified until, until the day you die. But he's fixed the ship. And now, 
and the hole's been patched, and now we need to clean things up. So attach that sin to the cross and leave it there. And again, do this while we sing the next song, and this should be a visual reminder that your sin has been paid for, Jesus has taken it, and your core has been changed. Let's pray. Father, we finally come to the climax of this book. Thank you. We cannot thank you enough that the hole in our soul has been patched and life can be ours. I pray, Lord, as we turn this, symbolically turn this sin over to the cross, we realize that indeed is what has happened when Jesus died for us. He took that sin. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in him that we live. Amen.